Last year we celebrated the, uh, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and so in addition to the five solas that, we, that the, uh, the Reformation handed d- down to us, it, it also brought us for the first time since the second century a biblical notion of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers is a central tenet of our chapel here. And it's not simply a theological concept. It's not simply a denial of holy order of priesthood as distinct from the laity. But its implications are far-reaching and ideas have consequences. In it, the work of every person is seen as a priestly service to God. In a word, every, every job has dignity and value. Luther had rejected the ancient notion that certain forms of work were superior to others. Sadly, as a nation, as a culture, we're, we're moving back in the direction where we hold some employment as higher than others. This is not a biblical picture. In fact, Luther held up the, mona- the, uh, the monastic and the contemplative life, which was the ideal in his time as an egotistical, unaffectionate way of life, cutting themselves off from their neighbors. For Luther, a person's work was in fact equated to his calling, and all callings had equal dignity before God. This is a this was significant because this is the first time since Adam that manual labor was affirmed. Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, his namesake, said this, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Biblically speaking, no work is unimportant. Labor it lifts up humanity. And it has dignity. It has importance. And it should be undertaken with excellence. John Calvin, in fact, taught that you had to work, even if you were independently wealthy, even if you weren't of the working class, you must, if you are a believer in God, work. Because that is the will of God. It was the duty of men to, uh, to serve as God's instruments here on earth. And the selection of an occupation and pursuing it to its, to its fullest, to its greatest capacity, that's what God uh, was calling us to do. And in fact, He taught that it was a, a religious duty. This is what became known as the Protestant work ethic, which is still remains with us in some forms today. It is, it is beginning to dissipate after 500 years But nevertheless, it's still a real thing. You know, those who settled America, the Puritans, the Quakers, other Protestants and the like, 
They came with the Protestant work ethic, while others had come in order to discover the riches of Eden so that they might be able to engage in a leisurely lifestyle. You know, that's what Aristotle said. The chief end of man, sounds like the, some confession, does it? The chief purpose and end of man is to enjoy leisure. So, I agree with Aristotle in a lot of things, but boy, I don't with that. The Protestants came with that work ethic, and they had no hopes, they had no illusions of a life of ease. In fact, from their perspective, the more difficulty uh, they had, and the harder that it was, the, uh, the more diligence and determination that it took, then the more morally ideal they were in fact operating. This was such that when the Europeans, significant numbers of them anyway, began to visit the new, the new world in the early 1800s, they were amazed that there was already a nation being carved out of nothing. They were amazed at that, but they were incredibly discouraged about something. And that was there weren't any opportunities for leisure. There were no places for amusement. There was no place where they could just enjoy the life of leisure because the Protestant communities who settled the country said, no, that is not what life is about. And they were upset that there was a real lack of social strata. Now, there was some that existed, but it wasn't anything like the European model. And so they wanted leisure. That was the only fitting life for a free person. So enter the proverbial sluggard. Now, I haven't talked about the sluggard yet. He's one of my favorite one of my favorite uh, characters in the book of Proverbs. But this morning we're going to briefly overview the sluggard. And then by extension, because the sluggard is anything but the Protestant work ethic. We're going to look at some things that the sluggard regards, uh, or at least may regard, as wise. And we're going to find that in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verses 16 through 4 following. I don't know, I don't think we'll get to the end, but that's all right. The book of Proverbs uh, speaks of the, the sluggard in really kind of amusing ways. I mean, you, you can't help but laugh a little bit when you find out that his only tool that he ever uses in the book of Proverbs uh, is his bed. And it says in Proverbs 26:14, just before our text, his bed is like a door swinging on its hinges. <laughs> he, he puts his hand in 26.15, he puts his hand in the dish, but is too lazy to bring it to his mouth. In other words, he starves to death because he won't take his hand from the food dish to his, uh, his mouth. The book of Proverbs uses uh, humor, a lot of humor with the, uh, the sluggard for at least two reasons. But we shouldn't be misled by thinking that uh, humor is anything other than life-altering serious. First, they portray him in a, a humorous way because it makes it easy to remember. And, and second, humor is, uh, can be disarming. I don't, I don't tell a lot of uh, jokes. I'm not, I just don't have that kind, of a, that kind of a mind. But when people are laughing, the full force 
uh, of the the truth actually comes behind the laughter. As you're as you're laughing about something, what you're doing actually, if you laugh, you're acknowledging the truth of it. And when you acknowledge the truth of it, and you're laughing, sometimes that truth then just comes in, and you go, "Ooh, that may apply to me as well." So, with those two things in mind, let's let's take an overview of the sluggard. First, the sluggard is a a rationalizer. Now, those of you who go through Proverbs every month who know a lot about the sluggard and read about the sluggard, what you'll find is that uh, that character is caricature is 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 misleading. We see a cartoon, and what we should see is our neighbor. We see something that's so out of distortion, we say there's no connection between me and the sluggard at all. And yet, it wouldn't be here if there wasn't a connection. And so, when it comes to the sluggard, first, the sluggard is a rationalizer. And I'm not even going to go into how often we tend to rationalize. So don't kid yourself about the sluggard. When it comes to getting out of responsibilities and out of work, there's always a reason. And it's, it's a reason that they're quick to find for their uh, apathy or their, their inaction. So when the, when the sluggard decides not to go to work, uh, he gives a plausible explanation. So we all are familiar with the one in Proverbs, repeated twice in chapter 22 and chapter 26 where we're at. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. And so he doesn't go to work. Now, here's the thing. 1 Samuel 17 does tell us that there were lions in the land at that time. Uh, But the likelihood of running into a lion in a village was remote at best. You know he's talking about the village because the lion is in the street. Not the lion is in the canyon. Not the lion is in the field. Not the lion is on the hilltop. No, the lions are in the streets. And that's where he doesn't, he doesn't want to be. So the sluggard emphasizes this. Why he cannot do what he should do instead of why he can I think that uh, when we look at the sluggard and we find this kind of rationalizing that goes on, we all are familiar with that, either with people that we know or perhaps even in ourselves. You know, I, with that lion in the street business, uh, I can't tell you how many people I've supervised and they would, uh, they would call in sick only to have me or one of my staff spot them at the the uh, base exchange or the post exchange or whatever it might be, or even worse, posting their exploits on Facebook. What is this? And so then you challenge them. You weren't sick on that day. Yeah, I know. But you said you took a sick day off. Yeah, I know. Why? Well, it's my right. Your right to take a sick day when you're not sick? Yeah, yeah. So they... People build in that, you know, and of course in the military there's no such thing as sick days. You just you take off when you're sick. And yet this thing is built into our society that you have sick days that you can take when you're not sick. So I'm not feeling I'm not feeling happy today, so 
I need a morale day off because I'm sick. You know, I, the sluggard fabricates a crisis that prohibits him from doing what he should be doing because he didn't want to do it anyway. And they're, they're uh, inveterately, they're passive-aggressive. Right, let me say what I mean by that. And I'm not using that in a clinical sense, please. It's, it's just a phrase. That is, like, if you've got somebody under your responsibility, that they're your responsibility, like your child or something like that, and you say, go mow the lawn. I don't want to mow the lawn. Go mow the lawn. I don't want it. And go, finally, you get them out there to mow it, and it zigzag, or they leave big stripes of grass there or whatever. And finally, what happens is you get to a point where you just say, okay, forget it. I'm not going to ask you again, right? And so they're happy. You'd think they'd be upset, but they're not. They're quite happy. That's what they wanted to do anyway, or I should say not. And, and it's because the, the rationalizations of the sluggard are always self-seeking. The sluggard is always looking out for number one. He has no consideration, or at least little consideration, for anyone else. He requires constant supervision. <laughs> I, uh, in my role in the military, I would have to write evaluation reports all the time. It was like, oh, i got to do this. All the time I was doing this. And so I had one enlisted person who I really did not want to get promoted. He did not deserve to be promoted. And so I wrote on his enlisted evaluation uh, uh, report the line, he does adequate work with constant supervision. And... Uh, the command chief called me into his office. He said, you can't say that. And I said, but it's true. He says, I don't care if it's true. You, you can't say it that way. Okay, all right. And so you learn these little coded way to, to say something. Back in the day when it was really the Wild West, this was probably about 30 years ago or so in the military, you would end up with lines, real lines in evaluation reports that, that were like something like this. Some village is being deprived of its idiot, you know, <laughs> or, or not the sharpest knife in the drawer, things like that. Well, they don't let you do that anymore, but they used to. Second, the sluggard takes the path of least resistance, even if it leads to pain. Yeah, the sluggard is, no, is nothing else. Uh, if, if he's nothing else, he's lazy. Because the laziness of the, the sluggard, he's going to choose ways that at the moment, at, at the moment, he's not thinking beyond the moment, so sluggards typically live in the now, and I don't mean that in a good way. It's a good thing to be aware and be in the now, be in the now, but the now is not all that we have. You know, it's like plan like you're going to live forever, but live like you're going to die today. You know, the sluggard, he doesn't think that way that way at all. In uh, chapter 21, 25, and 26, says the, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, right? For his hands refuse to work all day long, he's craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Only pain is able to gain the sluggard's attention the nature of the sluggard to avoid anything, uh, in fact, that's, that's, that's painful and unpleasant. 
So in our text today, we're going to begin in verse 16, where we're going to start looking at some of the things that may indicate sluggardly wisdom. Because the sluggard, contrary to what you may think, thinks that he is wise. In fact, verse 16 tells us this, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So understand, we're talking about someone who thinks they're all that and just a little bit more. There, uh, you know, uh, David Dunning, I've mentioned this before, but it's such a fascinating study. If you haven't uh, heard it, uh, I think you'll find it as fascinating as I did. He did a study on incompetence. And he says this, there are many incompetent people in the world, and he, in fact, is afraid that he's one of them. And he's a professor of psychology at Cornell, and, and he worries because his research has demonstrated that most incompetent people do not have the tools to recognize their own incompetence. In fact, they think they're really sharp. And what he did was he found that the worse someone is, the better they think they are. What an interesting finding. Dunning said this, he said, I began to think that there were probably lots of things that I was bad at, and I didn't know it. And this primary reason for being uh, ignorant is the same thing that allowed you to be uh, blissfully self-assured. I'm not going to go into all the, the details of it, but I, I want to come to a, a finer point on it. And, he, and that is, is that the incompetent suffer doubly, twice. They suffer twice because not only do they reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but because they don't get it, they don't understand how it's their own actions that have brought pain to themselves. This is the same thing, and you run across people like this, although I wouldn't put them in the category of the sluggard. This is a sluggardly trait. People who continually tell jokes that aren't funny because they, they don't get it. They think it's hilarious and nobody else does. They're humor impaired. You know, the, the findings support psychologists, uh, what, uh, what he said, uh, 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 what Thomas and Jefferson said. He who knows best knows how little he knows. So the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So while the text, the, the remainder of the text, doesn't directly address the sluggard, it does talk about how the sluggard thinks he's wise. And then you get these little bits of negative wisdom, which are interesting to me. These little doublets and triplets that follow uh, seem to be introduced by the wisdom of the sluggard. You know, what is it that a person who thinks he's seven times smarter than anyone else, uh, what would they find wise? And so I think we, we can take these morsels of Solomon's wisdom here, and it fits nicely into to Dunning's construct. So while we read that the sluggard will not work, what we find is, is that he may rush into arguments without any understanding on the side, because his view of himself in verse 17, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. 
Now, the word metals there uh, in our context, in, in the way we think of meddling, you know, you might say, oh, you know, somebody's getting into my soup or to my chili or something like that. That's pretty weak, really. That's not what the word, that's not what the word means that it, it is at its best. I think if you go to Proverbs, you've got the same author, the same word, in a similar context, you find Proverbs 22, the terror of the king is like a growling lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Same word. Provokes him to anger. Right? That's the notion here. The notion of meddling is someone who jumps in because they have the answer and all they do is make everybody mad. Solomon tells us that getting involved in other people's business without the responsibility, number one, or the invitation, number people need to invite you into their stuff, right? You've, you've, you've figured that out, right? You can't just go getting into other people's stuff. Hey, I got an answer for you. And they, even if it's the right answer, even if it's the golden ticket, they're going to say, butt out. You know, get out of get out of here. And yet, nevertheless, you have people who will go in, and Solomon tells us it's like it's like finding the stray dog and 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 pulling it on its ears. When's the last time? No, don't answer that question. Has anybody ever? No, don't don't answer that question either. Uh, we we just we're not a people who go around pulling on. Dog's ears. You know, and in the Middle East, now this was really rough because you had feral dogs or you had wild dogs, right? And if a dog came by, you didn't know if he was going to wag his tail or, or bite you. So why would you just grab a dog by the ears? And, you know, they, they can't be trusted. You don't know what's going to happen. And besides that, it's, it's a little bit mean to grab a dog by its ears. But the point is this. They may yelp or they may bite your finger off or they may give you rabies and you might die. The point is, Solomon's point is, you don't know. You don't know what's going on in the conflict, so stay out of it. Lest they invite you in because they do care about your wisdom. And I think the sluggard, the sluggardly seven times wiser than anybody else, they're probably wondering why nobody's inviting them into their conflict. (laughs) And so they butt in. Because a truly wise person will get invited in. You know, uh, Solomon's point is that you're going to have to bear the, the consequences. But the sluggard thinks his wisdom so highly that he's competent enough to solve everybody's problems. Some of you may have been around. Uh, this is old. Some of you never heard of this. Some of you may not even know who I'm talking about. Lyndon Baines Johnson, he was like, you know, the President of the United States. He was in the Rose Garden one day, and he had two... You can look the pictures up online. It was kind of staggering when it happened. But anyway, he had two beagle puppies. And he lifted them up both by their ears. How many of you saw that photo? Yeah, some people remember that. He lifted them up by their ears. And a reporter said, why are you doing that? And he says, because it's good for them to yelp. What? What do you mean it's good for them to yelp? Well, you know, back in that day, a lot of reporters had actually been raised in Christian homes, and not just Christian homes, but, but biblically knowledgeable 
homes. And there were some articles that came out and some cartoons that came out with him lifting up these puppies by the ears with the very subtle thing at the bottom that only if you knew the Bible you would get. And it's him, it was him putting his nose where it didn't belong, i.e. Vietnam. And they used that picture for him saying, get out, don't go in, get out. Second, sluggardly wisdom allows for something else. Malicious deceit. In verse 18, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. What's your problem? Right? What's your, what, what, you know, this is the only place in the entire Bible that this word madman is, is used. And it's from a very primitive root. This primitive root means to, to burn. And so there, there, there's this maybe... For the Hebrew reader, there may have been this play on words. The one whose mind is burned, burns others. And then says, hey, I was only joking. You know, this is a person who's got a perverse sense of, of, of humor. And how do you know a, a sense of humor is perverse? Well, I, I'll just give you a simple uh, definition. And that is, it's that a person whose humor is at another's expense. Not only is it not funny, but the kind of humor that it is, is actually based on causing harm to another person. Uh, practical jokes sometimes fit in this category. Not all of them. Some of them are, are pretty funny. But often they're not funny. I mean, Webster himself defines a practical joke as a trick that is designed to cause the victim to experience embarrassment, confusion, or discomfort. Now, I don't know how that finds its way uh, into the Christian church for that to be the design, but it does. Practical jokes as a category are entirely dependent upon deception in order to work. You're thinking one thing and you get... uh, uh, Another Taken to an extreme level, and again, I don't put all of them in that category, all practical jokes in that category, but some are. And if you take it to an even more extreme level, the deceiver takes advantage of his neighbor by lying. I mean, you can't overlook this notion of burn here. Uh, anger is the foundation and the source of all jokes that require... The lame, I was only joking excuse. When someone says, I was only joking, no, they weren't. Take it to the bank. They may not be able to explain it, and you may not be able to explain it, but that's not, I was only joking. Mm -mm. Even further on that spectrum, listen to me, because you won't believe this is true, but it is. There are those who actually take pleasure in bringing harm to others makes them feel good. These uh, people consciously do harm. They consciously take advantage to those whom you should be able to, to trust. They pretend friendship, but they have other motives. Now, these are people that need to be avoided. That They just need to be avoided in your life. But third, the wisdom of the sluggard 
says that slander is okay. That we're finding out this guy's not very wise. Verse 20, the, for the lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarrel, uh, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is the quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Now specifically, this verse is talking about slander. It, it's, it's talking about a whisperer defined as one who wants to stir up the, uh, the, the uh, quarrel. In fact, their goal is to keep the thing going. And that's why this imagery of a fire is used. This past Thanksgiving, uh, I hickory smoked my first turkey. Nobody's impressed. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I got this... Uh, this grill, it's got a propane grill and then it's got a, like an ambient temperature thing. I don't know what you call it. And then it's got where you put the charcoal. You can do direct. So this is indirect heat piece. And so I had to start this thing and start working on this fire for a long time. Hours I'm working on this thing. And then controlling the temperature. I was out there all day trying to figure out how to keep this thing just right. I'm glad the turkey was good, or it would have been like a, just a, a waste of my of my life in in cooking this this turkey, and it took intentionality to keep that fire going in the right way that I wanted it, and you know what? That's wonderful with a turkey. Some people do that with relationships. Some people do that in the church. They do it deliberately. They keep the fire stoked so that it can't go so that it can't go out. That's a sluggard's wisdom. But here's something that's very interesting because I, I don't want to keep the sluggard so far out away from us that we think he's not a person that we could know. I want you to notice that the author makes an interesting turn in verse 22, where he he's not talking about the consequence. He's not talking about, you know, hey, this is stupid or whatever. He's making a statement, and it sounds like he's talking about himself. He said, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. I mean, Solomon seemed to be talking uh, uh, to about at least the general truth that, hey, you know what? Sometimes, sometimes we like this. Sometimes we like to hear things. Those, those things are like choice morsels, he said. That, what does he mean by that? He means the best food. He means it tastes really good. And it's just here that I, you know, I think that I and I think that we have to pause for a moment because before I can sit back and evaluate someone else's words, I have to stop and I have to evaluate mine. I mean, do I, am I the kind of person that has a desire to hear these things? Am I the kind of person that, that won't say, you know, hey, you know what, that's, that's not appropriate for this context? Or am I the kind of person that would stop it at all? Or am I the kind of person that would listen, listen all the way through and then count myself as innocent? And, oh, no, they're the ones who said it. You know, my listening was passive, so, you know. He makes this turn, and it's, it's like 
Yeah, we want to know secrets. We do. In 1998, I was deployed to uh, Prince Sultan uh, Air Base. And rarely do I get any kind of impulse to uh, walk a great distance and, and, and pray. And Dan does that every day. He probably puts in five miles in the chapel. We're going to have to replace the carpet. He's, he walks and prays. I, I pray in a more reclined <laughs> way. But anyway... So, but I did that day. So I went out and I went out to the flight line, and so I'm I'm praying for all the maintenance folks, and I'm I'm praying for all the uh, the the uh, air crews and, and the planes and so forth. And so later that night, I get a call from the ops group commander, and he said that I was to report to his office immediately. And I asked uh, if I could bring the wing chaplain because I thought I was in trouble. See, they don't call you unless you're in trouble, right? And so uh, I, I needed a little, a little defense. And he said, yeah, that, that was fine, but get to his office immediately. And so we got there. No one else is there. It's just him. And, and I thought, ooh, I must have really messed up bad because I was the chaplain for uh, rivet joints and uh, some, you know, there's this stuff to do, you know, pretty, uh, pretty secret kind of stuff. And I thought maybe I'd inadvertently carried my phone in there or did something stupid, whatever it was. But no, it wasn't that. He said, uh, he said please sit down. And we sat there. And, and then he said, he said, gentlemen, we're going to war. And I want you to come with me and bless the aircraft as they take off. And most of the air crews don't even know uh, where they're going. Um, they'll get orders when they're in the air. Oh, my. Did, did I... Did I feel special at that point? I had a secret. You know, how about that? And so we went out there. What wonderful prayers we, we prayed. It was a wonderful time. And, uh, and it felt really, really good to be in on a national secret. However, later that evening, President Clinton pulled the plug. I mean, the aircraft, they were all gone. They were actually, some of them over there, their uh, their targets and and he said no no we're not going to do it so it was actually another 72 hours before that action began but now you got people who aren't in the inner ring who know things i.e. the wing chaplain and me <laughs> so the wing commander got involved boom stood us up and ordered us not to say anything to anybody about this. Now, uh, um, you'd think, after 25 years in the military, I would have had a lot of orders. You don't actually get... You, that actually doesn't happen very often. It happened that day. And so we're walking back, and the, the wing chaplain starts, starts going on. I don't, I'm, anyway, uh, I'm... I am not a hero of a story. That's not what I'm telling the story of, but it does point out something very interesting. He started saying, I have to tell somebody. I gotta tell somebody. I gotta tell my sister. You know, we had a morale phone at the chapel where you could call pretty much anywhere in the world. He said, I'm gonna tell my sister. I said, you can't. No! Don't do this! We would be in so much trouble. This is crazy. Don't do it. I don't know if he ever I don't know if he ever did or not, but he was giddy with the prospect that he couldn't contain this thing. And I felt it too. I wouldn't act on it. 
I don't know if he did or not. Uh, but there was something about you need to tell somebody. You know, and I think that we have that drive in us. And that's something that, that Solomon had, I believe, as well. And it's something that we have to resist. I think that secrets harmonize with our pride in our heart. And it's palpable. So lest we discover that we are being a little bit sluggerly, there's a few things that we shouldn't do that I've already mentioned. Don't enter into other people's business lest they invite you. And even then, tread with care. We're not to humiliate or embarrass others with our anger. We, we need to respect as best we can. If we found out that we've inadvertently disrespected someone or humiliated or embarrassed them, we need to make it right. And we're not to stir up strife. The solution to all of that, I think, goes back to the, the beginning. And that is God made us for something. Eric Little, when he would run from you know, Chariots of Fire fame. He ran, when he ran, he felt God's pleasure. Now, this may be far from us, but I'll tell you, this is the biblical view. When we work, when we put our hand to the task, we should feel God's pleasure. God made us to work. What was Adam and Eve's job in the garden? to tend it, to care for it. Do you think that there was a difference in Adam's mind from when he was digging or reaping or picking flowers or walking and enjoying the garden itself? It was all to the glory of God. The the sluggard's wisdom tells us to take the easy, the leisurely path. But that only leads to pain. And, and the problem with it is the person doesn't understand even why they're in pain. God made us in His image to work, to be people of wisdom and understanding. God made us not to feed quarrels, but to be peacemakers. And He made us to bring healing as we, as we can. Yet we've all sinned. We've all come up short. And this is why God sent His Son to die on a tree so that we might have life, so that we can replace these kinds of values that we may share with the biblical sluggard to the values that Christ gives us in our heart where His Spirit can dwell in us. And if we're wise, truly wise, we will turn to Him this morning for salvation. I mean, both eternal, yes, but also temporal. We sang the song, Emmanuel, God with us. And God is with us, and He will help us in these situations. Lord, help us to be a people who operate in accordance with His image. Father, we are so deeply grateful for who You are. Lord, we... We're amazed that You give us the life that You give. 
Lord, we thank you for this example in the book of Proverbs about someone that we may tend to characterize a little bit too much so that we think that we have no connection with them. We pray that we do things not the way that's described there about the sluggard, but that we do things that are described about your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we live lives worthy of his calling. We thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.